Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We're about to head through the final two chapters. We're midway and heading towards the fifth. We're about to finish up this incredible book in the next uh, three or four weeks. And tonight, a study I hope will get your attention. Boasting is brainless. Boasting is brainless. It is one of those things that in the way that we think about God should affect the way that we reach out to the Lord in all things pertaining to life and godliness. So many Christians almost treat God like he's the emergency button or perhaps he's the court of last resort. And in the way that we would understand that is when you look at your life, how often do you go to the Lord First, how often do you go to the Lord last after things blow up in your face? We boast about our, our brain power. We, we boast about our plans. We talk as if God were actually not involved in our lives a, a large percentage of the time. And so I hope tonight that you'll glean from these few verses, just verses 13 to 17, really how to handle the way that you view God in your making of plans and really the organizing of your steps or, more importantly, the lordship of your life. And so would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up here in verse 13 uh, here in James chapter 4. Father, we thank you that you really delight to be involved in absolutely every area and aspect of our lives. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you'd help us to stop being dependent upon ourselves, upon our plans, upon our organization, Lord, upon the things that we possess and have stewardship over, but rather we would turn over the leadership of our life to you. We'd stop boasting in our own abilities and rather boast in our God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. Speak to us through it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13 here in James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make profit. And now I want to set the stage here. Please understand that not only is God not against plans, his word actually says that we are supposed to make plans, but we're supposed to let him ordain our steps. And so the planning is not the problem. The using your brain, also not the problem. The problem is once you make your plans, once you use your brain, Who is it that you're turning to to ordain your steps? To get you from point A to point B or point A to point Z or from earth to heaven, where are you actually turning to for the leadership of your life? Notice as James continues, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Anybody want to say amen to that? You don't. You may think you do, and you've probably made plans for tomorrow. But the fact of the matter is, there's not a person in here who actually knows what's going to happen 10 to 15 seconds from now. If you really want to look at it from the eyes of the Lord, just like that poor UPS worker in San Diego who was sitting in his truck on a suburban street and was dead before he knew what hit him because a plane dropped out of the sky. It wasn't anywhere near an airport. 
you don't know what's going to happen 10 seconds from now. You may think you do, and you may think that you have control over said events. But the truth is, you have very little control over anything. And you certainly don't have control over your tomorrow. But who does? That's the Lord. And so we should be constantly aware of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For what is your life? These are such deep truths that this is the type of stuff that people, you know, go to the Himalayas and ponder their navel over. What is your life? What is your life? It is even a vapor. It's fog, smoke, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. Now, I want you to notice this is often misinterpreted. It literally says, if the Lord wills, we shall live. In other words, the emphasis there is, if the Lord doesn't will for you to live one more day, you're not going to. The Lord actually has your life in his hands. And it is only the will of the Lord that allows you to live yet another day. And if he ever decides in his marvelous timing that tomorrow is not for you, you won't make it. No matter how much Botox you've had, no matter how many vitamins you took, no matter how much you avoided bacon, no matter how good you were at eating, good you were at eating kale, no matter what you did to preserve your life, when the Lord says your appointment is up, it is appointed unto man one time to die, and then judgment, what we just saw in the book of Hebrews. God has an appointed time for every last one of us. We don't know when that day is. I have buried an awful lot of children. Not one of them, not one of them, did any person involved in that child's life think that was going to be their last day. And by the same token, I have presided over the memorial services of people that have lived to be nearly a hundred. There doesn't appear to be a rhyme or a reason. There isn't the necessity of living one way versus another way. I've watched people consume so much bacon you would think their arteries could not pass an ounce of blood. They'd live to be very, very well advanced in age. And I've seen children in the prime of life cut down by rare diseases that no one should ever have to endure. Only the Lord knows your tomorrow. And you need to lay hold of that because it will cause you to live life differently. Because if you see life that way, every single day matters. Every moment of your life has purpose and meaning because the Lord allowed you to live it. That means he must have had a purpose for that moment of that day. And I think a lot of Christians waste time worrying about tomorrow. That's why Jesus said, don't do it. He said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Why? Because he holds tomorrow. God holds tomorrow. Your tomorrow's in his hands. And so when we boast about the things that we have, or when we think that we have full control, or when we start living for the things that we have purposed and planned, we're actually denying that the Lord is in control of our lives to a degree. Understand what James is saying here through the Holy Spirit. We shall live. And 
do this or that. So not only is your life, but actually the substance of it is in the Lord's hands. Not just the day itself, but whatever is going to happen in it. And therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's unpack this very marvelous passage that will help us greatly in our daily lives. So you can kind of see God's actually arranging for us to understand he's okay with plans. But he's not okay with our overconfidence in those human plans. And he's definitely not okay if we leave him out of those plans. Because ultimately those plans he holds in his hand. He actually has the final say. He's the final authority. You know, sometimes people will ask me, what's the most difficult thing practically about being a pastor of a large church? And I will almost universally say it has nothing to do with the teaching schedule and the people and all those kind of things. It has to do with the buck stops at my desk. I bear the problems. I bear the weight. I personally have to deal with all of the things that might happen in the church it is my little world that God's put me into to where, Jeff, that's your responsibility. You have that authority. Now, here's the great news. I say that, but actually God has that under control. And to the extent that I'm leaning on him, that lifts that burden off of me. But when I lay hold of it, then that practicality becomes my reality. What I say is, is the practical thing that weights me down becomes the reality of what has weighted me down. And those two things can be different. In a very real sense, I have things that God's called me to do. They're my responsibility. But ultimately, he holds that day and everything in it in his hands. And so first we see this proposition about boasting now, it's likely he was probably in the family carpenter's business. He certainly knew how to work. And he knew that boasting about these things, whether it's the plans or the purposes of man, ultimately could become a trap. And so he kind of takes aim, if you will, at making these plans for the, for the sake of what one might gain from them. Notice he says, buy, sell, and make a profit. The Lord Jesus actually gave us a parable about this very thing in Luke chapter 12. Most of you, if you've studied with us through the Gospel of Luke recently, might remember that particular passage. It's the story of the rich man. And you might remember that that rich man had a great plan, amen? He had worked hard, he had done well, he had brought in the grain harvest, and like any good businessman... He's waiting for the proper time to sell. You see, you can have a product, but if you sell at the wrong time, your profit margin's going to be low. He thought he had it made. I'm going to withhold my grain. I'm going to keep it off the market. I'm going to store it up, and I'm going to wait for just the right moment. And then I'll dump it on the market, and I'm going to become a grain mogul. And I'm paraphrasing. You remember what Jesus said to him? He actually called that man a fool. Do you remember why? Tonight, your life will be required of you. You see, he had a great plan, but he left God out of his plans. So they weren't the Lord's plans. They were his plans. You want God's plans to be your plans, not your plans to have to be God's plans. Do you understand the difference? You want God's plans, God's will. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You want God's plans to be your plans, not the other way around. Because if you begin boasting about your plans, you can be well assured that the Lord doesn't take kindly to having to do battle with your plans. And he will prove your plans to be futile if they're interfering with his lordship. Uh, I can tell you countless stories of people that have gone through that particular situation in their life. 
That rich man in Luke 2, I believe at least three things that we can draw from him, three common mistakes, if you will. The first mistake is he mistook, here it is, and if this isn't the American way of life, I don't know what is. He mistook his bank account for his Bible. He mistook his riches because he had them as though he knew what he needed to know about the God whom he served. And he stopped really listening to God and he simply just relied on his riches. So many times, in the, especially in the, the four Gospels, we see this issue of riches addressed. Not that riches are bad, but the reliance upon them can become a God in and of themselves and bring many sorrows. This man had a problem. And that problem was his God was his planned riches. So instead of looking to the word and looking to the Lord, he simply looked to what he already had. Very dangerous place to go. A second thing, he mistook his hunger for his heart. And if you read that parable, he actually says, speaking of his own soul, soul, you have many goods. Eat, drink, and be merry. You see, he was leaning on the hunger of his physical body and not on the hunger that he should have had within his soul, within his heart. He was not doing what Jesus reminded us to do, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He was just simply hungering and thirsting after the things of this world. And the things of this world cannot ever permanently satisfy or satiate our hunger. They just can't. There is a God-designed vacuum that exists in every single person that only he can fill. That hole will continue to suck things into it until you finally allow God to be the thing that stops that vacuum from increasing. Your soul, your heart, even your mind ultimately has very little use for barns, bumper crops, has no use for beef, steak, and beer. It, it just, you can't fill what needs to be filled in your life with stuff. A third thing, and this is maybe the one that is the most critical, he mistook his time on earth for eternity. Your time on earth is very, very, very short. For those of us that are in the room and we're a little advanced in in age, whereas, you know, good horse people say long in the tooth, you look there and the teeth are starting to show and the gums are receding. We're long in, we're a little longer on this earth than some of you that are young. You start thinking in terms of this is my last dog, this is my last car, this is my last house, this might be my last dollar. You just think that way. Why? Because when you're older, you realize you don't have, you got a lot less time left than you've already exhausted in your life. But when you're younger, you think you're going to live forever. You, you look at it, oh, that'll never happen. That'll never come. And so James reminds us of the brevity of life. Family of God, your life is going to be over before you know it. And that's not to put anybody into a depressed mood. You should enjoy every moment of every day that God's given you. But the fact of the matter is nobody gets more than maybe a hundred. You, know, you only get a hundred years or so. That's it. Eternity is forever. Relative, your life is a vapor. It's exactly what James says. It is here today and it's gone tomorrow. So we spend all this time worrying about the vaporous time that we have called life and we spend no time worrying about eternity. Why is that important? It's not just your eternity. It's your family's eternity. 
It's your extended family's eternity. It's your community's eternity. It is your city's eternity. It is your state's eternity. It is your country's eternity. It is the world's eternity that the body of Christ is supposed to be focused on, not your own personal today. Because your own personal today, Jesus said, will take care of itself. We're supposed to be worrying about eternity. And when we have eternity in view, then we have the right perspective of today. But if we don't have eternity in view, we will not have the right perspective on today. This is so important for us to get because it changes literally the way you think. When I realize that the worst thing that can happen to me from the world's perspective is is I take my last breath, that that is also the best thing that can happen to me as a believer in Christ Jesus, it doesn't make it all that dangerous, does it? So I say, oh man, man, I got to go to heaven. No, you don't think that way. When you have an eternal perspective on things, you look at what you have today in that light. The problem is we get so focused on today and not focused on tomorrow, we're going to spend all of eternity in that tomorrow, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, and we're only going to spend 24 hours in today, and at least a third of that, you aren't even going to be conscious. And we freak out over this 24-hour period, and maybe the one tomorrow. If God doesn't have your eternity under control, he certainly is incapable of doing much else. Of course he's got eternity under control. Notice the reality of this problem. We have an uncertain future. There's just really two parts to it. God basically draws this veil between today and tomorrow, and we can't gaze past it. No astrologer can help you see it. No spiritist, no soothsayer, no psychic, no spirit guide. Nobody can get you on the other side of that veil, period. It can't be done. And so you will never know what's on the other side of that veil, You may guess correctly every once in a while. You might have some good ideas. You will probably make some plans that will come to pass. But if the Lord doesn't give you that next day, then all of that energy and time that you put in trying to figure that out causes it to all be for nothing. And people turn in in incredible ways to this uncertain future as if They can figure it all out. I'm old enough. Connie and I first went into ministry, and there was a pamphlet that just came out by a former NASA engineer, Edgar C. Wisenant, and he wrote this thing, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And he predicted literally the rapture of the church. And so here we are in 1988, and I'm thinking, well, what if he was right? You know, maybe, who knows? Well, I hate to tell you this, but he's wrong. And what he said not only didn't come true, but he went into this precise detail. He gave the date the Antichrist would sign a treaty with Israel. He gave the date that the 144,000 witnesses would be sealed for the work of the Lord. He gives all these dates and he claims he found some code inside of the scriptures and, you know, he's got all this stuff. Here's the problem. The Bible says no one knows tomorrow. The Bible plainly says no one knows when the return of the Lord is. No one knows when the church is going to be raptured. So, All these people that think they can somehow peel back the veil. And I know what's on the other side of today. They're always going to be wrong. Because the Bible says so. God's not given that information to anyone. Because if that person actually had that information, they would be like God. And God's not going to allow any competition. Now, the devil may purpose to allow some of those things to happen, 
But from God's perspective, he wants you to trust him for today. And so this whole dependence on trying to figure out things that you can't know is really kind of silly. It's brainless. Make your plans. Do do what God asks you to do. And then leave the results in his hands. The second thing is the frailty of the human condition. You can't know what tomorrow holds, and you might not make it to tomorrow. It's just that simple. I've had people that I know that have gotten cancer, and they've been gone in a matter of months. They thought they had their whole life ahead of them. I can't even tell you how many pastor friends, people that I've known in ministry, ah, we're getting ready to do this and do that, and all of a sudden they're home in heaven. Now, from our human perspective, we look at it and go, oh, that was unfair. And to some degree, from a human perspective, it seems so. But from God's perspective, he doesn't make mistakes. We are just simply very frail. I want you to think about your body for a second. You can only, you might live if you were deprived of oxygen for three minutes. You might recover from that, maybe. Highly likely not without massive brain damage, but you might live if you simply had your airway cut off for three minutes. If somebody applied 12 to 14 pounds of pressure to your neck in the right direction, you might possibly survive that type of a blow. If your body temperature exceeds 104 and makes it to 106, you might survive that type of a fever. Think about where you are normally, 98.6, almost 99 degrees. Seven lousy degrees, and you are D-E-A-D dead if you stay that way for very long. Why am I giving you these depressing stats? Because you're actually very frail. And were it not for the sustaining hand of the Lord, we wouldn't exist. You ever thought about the, the amount of gravitational force that's exerted on your body? Probably most of you are going, no. It's just the right amount so that your blood vessels don't collapse. So that your heart can pump blood. It's just the right amount so you stay on earth as opposed to floating off and so that you're not compressed down to it. There's there's just so many marvelous things about how frail we actually are. Of course, none of us want to hear about COVID. It's just a virus. And yet one in 500 people in the United States of America has died from it. We are frail very frail. And if it weren't for the Lord sustaining us, none of us would make it. Don't even think about the teenage years. You know what I'm saying? How many dumb things did you do as a teenager? You look back, well, if I'd actually fallen off of that roof, I would have been dead. If I actually didn't make it across that bay that I was swimming in, I would have been dead. The Bible clearly paints this picture so that we don't depend on tomorrow, not even physically. Some of us are a little more healthy, a little more athletic, a little stronger, you might say physically, but how many of you by worry can increase your stature? Jesus said, you can't. You can't add to your days. And so we have this picture here in James of the reality of the problem our certain uncertain future, and our human frailty. This is the reason that the Bible paints these things. Moses understood this for sure. Think about it. Here's Moses. He survives wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. When you travel to the southern Levant, when you're in Israel... And you're sitting there at the, the, the edge of the, of the Red Sea. 
And you're looking out into this expanse that is Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. You talk about a bunch of nothing. You know, we drive out across our desert, Mojave Desert here. It seems like there's nothing. But at least there's plants out there. There's no plants. It's rock. It's sand. There's nothing. Moses survived that because God took care of him. Not because they had a great plan. They had no plan. In fact, the only plan they had was God's plan. Go out every morning and pick up manna. And oh, by the way, I'm going to send you due at night so you don't die of thirst. Because I want to tell you something. There's no rivers. There's no lakes. There's no streams. There's no water fountains. There's no filtration plants. But they survived. Why? Because God had it under control. This vapor that we are gives us a couple of lessons. Water obeys the downward pull of this world. If you take water, actual H2O in its liquid form, it actually is going to respond to gravity, isn't it? That's why we get rain, by the way. But when it's vapor, what happens? It actually is able to escape gravity. The only thing that makes one, the vapor different than the water is the sun. That's it. The sun turns it into vapor, it can travel up. And in the same way, the sun, S-O-N, in your life, makes your life so that vapor of your life can travel up. Otherwise, it stays on this earth. Amen? And that vapor of your life is actually quite powerful. (laughs) Just as in 1763, when James Watt who was a rather thoughtful scientist, was sitting watching a pot of water boil. As the lid was on top of the pot, he noticed that the lid was actually being moved by the steam. And he realized that there must be something to this, even though the steam, when it came out, you couldn't actually really see it for very long, but it was dispensing energy. And the same way your life, for the most part, really doesn't have a whole lot of substance to it, but because of it being harnessed by the Holy Spirit, it has power to move mountains. God wants to use the vapor of your life just like the steam inside of a steam engine, which ultimately would cause us to end up in the industrial revolution. It would cause steam train travel. We'd be able to move goods across the really across the globe, all over Europe and here in the United States. All you had to do was channel that vapor. And the same way, the Lord wants to channel the vapor of your life. But it's not going to be here forever. Just like the steam in a steam engine. Once it goes by and that engine goes by and that steam's come out of the smokestack and that transference of that energy that's produced by the expanding gases is transferred into linear motion through a piston that simply moves back and forth. Once that's done, the vapor's gone. And in the same way, your life is going to be here, but it's going to account for something if you allow the Lord to harness the steam or the vapor of your life. But you've got to let him do that. If you don't, then you become just another rogue water molecule. Again, metaphorically speaking. Our lives can be dissipated. They can be wasted. They can become nothing. They can drift in the atmosphere. Or we can be channeled and changed and contained and we can accomplish great things for God. The choice is yours. What are you going to let God do with the vapor of your life? Because you are vapor. The question is, what's going to happen with it? And so we see a powerful proposition that comes before us now. For you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. Kind of brings us back around to the original thought. If the Lord 
wills. The Lord wills to do great things with your vaporous life. The Lord wants to take you and use you. You may feel that you're insignificant. You might look at your life as, oh, I'm just a water vapor. I'm just another molecule of H2O that's being heated up. But from God's perspective, he sees the individual accomplishments that he wants to do with your life. And he's just sitting there going, I want to use you, Jeff. But you've got to do things my way. I'm in charge, you're not. You need to let me harness who you are. And so there's a, there's a proposition here for us. We're going to be going to the book of Joshua next, so you can kind of put on your get-ready-for-war hats as Joshua goes into the land and begins this conquest of Canaan. Very exciting book. Lots of wonderful stories in it, ones that you're familiar with. But when you get into the book of Joshua, a couple of things, two stories that you're probably familiar with is, the first one is Jericho. Everybody who's been in church for a week, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And they marched around the city and they blew trumpets. The walls came tumbling down. There's this incredible thing and it was the plan of God. It didn't make any sense. And they went out and they did this wonderful thing and the walls came down and they're victorious. Like, yes! And the next city that they're going to conquer is a far less formidable city called the city of Ai. And so Joshua doesn't consult with God. He figures, we got this. We'll just go do what we did at Jericho. The problem was he didn't count on a man named Achan who had stolen the treasure that had been consecrated to God and it was inside of the camp of the Israelites. And so he didn't even ask. They just went and did their own thing. They were routed. It was embarrassing. They were defeated. And the point is this, no matter how much it looks like you don't need the Lord... You need the Lord. No matter how good your plans were yesterday, you need the Lord's plans for the rest of today and tomorrow. And so do I. So do we, collectively. And so Joshua kind of acted arrogantly. He, He was that person that we started with, boasting, is brainless. It's like, we got this. Don't need you, Lord. Well, no, you really don't. You might think you don't need me, but actually you need me more for AI than you did for Jericho. I had Jericho set up, but I was checking to see how you would respond and I let you handle the plans for AI. And you didn't even ask me. And they lost. And they didn't kind of sort of lose. They got slaughtered. When you look at the life of Jesus, and I won't belabor this, but if you just simply tertiary, in a tertiary way, look at the life of Jesus, you find Jesus constantly seeking the will of his Father. He is in prayer throughout his whole life. Remember how he broke the, he lifted up his eyes and prayed and broke the bread. When he's in the River Jordan, he prayed. When he's in the garden, he prayed. Before he got to the garden, he prayed from the cross, from the cross. Father, forgive them. You know why? Because it was an inhuman thing that had happened to him and it would take inhuman grace to get him through that time. That was not the grace that you get just from being diligent. That was the grace of God the Father poured out on Christ the Son. And Jesus needed it. And so we asked for it. Father, forgive them. 
Because I guarantee the father was sitting in heaven probably with fire in his eyes going, how dare you do this to my son? Even though it was his plan. The torture that Jesus endured, Jesus prayed for you from the cross, for me from the cross. How much more do we need to seek this incredible dependency on the Lord himself? The life of Jesus is the record of his dependency on God the Father. Period. There's a prohibition. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. There's probably not a, a greater example of this than our poor friend Peter. Peter is perhaps the most poignant boaster that we find in the Bible. Because you remember what Peter did. He actually kind of got in Jesus' face, I will never deny you, Lord. Now, as much as his intent may have been well-intentioned, it was still boastful. It was prideful. And to prove it, there's a reason that Peter had a sword in the garden. After the Lord clearly told them, this, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Peter's going, no, you're not. Not on my watch. Jesus said, yes, I am. Peter says, no, you're not. Who won that argument? Jesus. You see, so God literally is against that pride. He, as much as Peter may have been well-intentioned, he should have understood that this same one that could walk on waves on the Sea of Galilee, the same one that could feed the thousands on the mountain, the same one who could heal the leper and heal the lame and raise the dead, the same one actually said, I'm going to die. And you talk about presumptuous. No, you're not. Yes, Peter, I am. And you need to rest in what I've said. If there was a lesson the church needs to re-engage right now in our day and time is what the Lord has said he means. His word is true. And when we follow it, we're not going to be proven wrong. But when we don't consult him and don't follow it, we're going to be wrong a vast majority of the time. The end of Peter's story was by the time the the rooster had crowed three times. There's Peter. Peter's pride in himself. Peter's planning for the future by getting a sword. Peter's absolute self-confidence that he could fight off a Roman cohort if necessary. Think about what he was doing. There was a cohort, 100 Roman soldiers, fully armed, that came with the high priest and Malchus's servant. And Peter's like, they're not taking you, Lord. I got this. We've got to be careful. The Lord doesn't need our pride. He needs our submission. He needs our obedience. He needs our humble, bowed knee so that we can do what he's asked us to do. Every bit of that boasting, as it was in Peter's life, that was sin. It was sinful on Peter's part to deny the Lord. And praise God, Peter's sin was met with even greater grace. Amen? You can read that story at the end of John's Gospel. Peter's sin was met with even greater grace, so take heart in that. But it's best to not be in that situation in the first place. And finally, at the end of this, there is a powerful principle that we can close with. And therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. 
Much of God's plan for our lives, much of his will is actually revealed in his word. We actually have the answer to a very large percentage of the things that we will face in life. And so when you know to do good, in other words, when God has already spoken and then we do not do it, it's sin. That's why when people come and they, you know, they try and jockey their way around some passage of scripture, when that scripture is clear, that is God's will. We don't need to debate it. We don't need to talk about it. You don't need to ask me if it's going to be, you know, I know this guy doesn't know the Lord, but should I marry him? I'll just tell you, no, you shouldn't. Why? Because scripture says, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. For what has Christ to do, what does Christ have to do with the devil? You're going to be in two different places. You can go ahead and do it if you want, but you're going to prove that God is right and you are wrong. Now, There have been cases where that's worked out, but chances are it won't. You see, when you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. You shouldn't be boasting about that. If your plans disagree with God's word, then your plans are wrong. That's what you need to know. And that's also the path you need to take. And in no place is that one better illustrated than in the story that we call the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember, there's a priest, and he's on his way to Jericho. They're on the Jericho Road, which winds through a series of canyons, leaves East Jerusalem, and goes through these wadis, and just kind of winds all over the place. As the crow flies, it's only about 11 miles to Jericho, but the Jericho Road's about 27 miles long. I mean, it literally goes everywhere, goes through every canyon and down through these desolate valleys. During biblical times, because of the turns and twists and the hidden little box canyons, it was a place where robbers would wait for people to come by. And so here's this man. And he's beaten nearly to death and he's laying in the road. And a priest comes by. Do you think that priest knew what the Old Testament said about people who met an unfortunate end? What they should do for that purpose, for that person, in that place? This is a man who had been officiating at the altar, who had declared God to be holy, who had declared God to be the one who watches after the, the least of these, who would have known surely what to do with someone who had been disadvantaged and harmed, certainly you would think a priest would have stopped and done something for that man, irrespective of the fact that he was a Samaritan. He would have even done it for his neighbor's donkey. If your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's oxen falls in a ditch, you're allowed to get them out on the Sabbath of all things. And here's a man created in the image of God, and he does absolutely nothing. He knew it was sin. The same thing is true for the Levite that comes along next. A Levite who spent his time really kind of as a negotiator of the things of God, describing the law. And what does he do? He does exactly the same thing, absolutely nothing. Why is that important? Because they boasted about how holy they were. They boasted about how righteous they were. They boasted about their standing before the Lord. They would proudly announce, in fact... Very often they would have a group of people that would go before them and kind of clear the path because they were so holy. Here comes the priest and here comes the Levites and you need to make sure that they don't get defiled and get out of the way. And yet they couldn't do the most simple thing. They were willing to boast about their own holiness, but that holiness didn't do what we've already seen James said for us to do. For this is pure and true and undefiled religion that you take care of widows and orphans. That you be a doer of the word. 
And so as you look at this particular passage and you wrap it up in your mind, we don't want to be like that priest. We don't want to be like that Levite. We want to be like the good Samaritan who probably didn't have on his plans that day to take care of somebody else that needed help. And in fact, if you remember the story, the Good Samaritan took that man and made sure that if there was a debt that was owed, that he would come back and pay it. That's someone who's willing to let God interrupt his plans so that God's plans become his plans. Didn't boast about what he had going on. He said, Lord, if you put a divine delay in my life, I'm all in. If you change my schedule, gladly do what you want me to do. Let's make sure we follow that example. Boasting about our own abilities, our own plans, our own bank accounts. Not consulting God, seeing likely the path that God would have us on and then doing nothing with it is not the plan of blessedness. I don't know about you, but I like being blessed. So I want to be on God's plan. I want to do what he wants me to do. And if we do, I can just simply boast in him. And that kind of boasting is good. Boast in the Lord. You'll never go wrong. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. Father, how silly it is when we toot our own horns or we talk about the things that we are going to do or might have and we don't consider you. And so, Lord, help us to put you first. Or we thank you for your grace that takes our failures, Lord, the things that we don't do well, and you help us the next time to do them better. And, Lord, we're so grateful for that. I thank you for that in my life, Lord. It isn't about sinless perfection. It's about a change of direction. And so, Lord, help us to change. Help us to move. Help us to go where you go and do what you ask us to do. Help us to consult you, Lord, before we make our plans. Help us to never trust in our bank accounts or our brains, but help us to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge you and let you guide and direct our paths, even if it takes us to a man who's lying on the side of the road that needs care. Lord, we welcome your interruptions. We know they're divine. Pray that you'd use us for your glory. Help the vapor of our lives to count for something meaningful. Help us to have power that accomplishes great things for you. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.